Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Featuring Cambridge University's Dr. Chris Smith, this is Ask the Naked Scientists. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk. Time now for our regular and popular slot with uh, Dr. Smith. Good morning, Dr. Smith. Morning, Crystal. Morning, Crystal. Really good to chat to you for the first time live on air. Good to talk to you as well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you this morning and how's the weather in Cambridge? Well, we're doing that English thing of starting talking about the weather. It's cold. Of course, it's wintertime. But not as cold as it should be, not as cold as it should be. And we're slowly slipping down towards seasonal norms, but we still see these quite hot days, as in double digits of of centigrade, which which is well above seasonal norm. And we're seeing this consistently in years as we approach winter, and then suddenly you get a cold snap. And the reason for this is disruption of the weather patterns. And, of course, it's very tempting to suggest that probably this is a representation or manifestation of climate change. Absolutely, Dr. Chris. I This week I had to take out my winter jackets because it was pretty cold. But today I can safely say I can see the mountain and I'm wearing sandals. So <laughs> that's us here in Cape Town. So, Dr. Chris, we'll start off. Of course, as you know, this is a very popular slot and Cape Talk listeners have been sending us different questions. So we'll start off with as an AI skeptic who's very concerned about the speed it's growing and adapting adapting, will we ever be able to reverse the awareness levels of AI as it gets out of control? Am I being paranoid? This is Stephen in Seapoint here, Dr. Chris. Hi, Stephen. Well, of course, in the last couple of weeks, there was an international meeting around this. It was hosted by the UK and centred on Bletchley Park, which is the famous code-breaking site that helped to crack the German Enigma code and helped to win World War Two. So it was a, a fitting venue to discuss something that could have both beneficial but also potentially nefarious outcomes because with all of these sorts of tools, there's potentially a force for good and a force for bad. So people are very concerned about this and the fact that at the moment there are no guide rails. You could fall off the edge quite easily and people are trying to discuss how do we put in place guidelines and and guide rails so that we can constrain and contain how these sorts of systems are used and deployed. The problem, of course, comes that we might sign up to that or countries with good intent might sign up to that but what about other more as they are dubbed nefarious actors there are many countries which don't sign up to these sorts of things and even if they do they don't stick to their own signature so really the question comes down to understanding what it can do and then putting in place tools to help to detect what these things can do and when they're being used but people are really really worried and there's a lot of unanswered questions and While many of the scenarios being presented do dwell around Terminator-type situations where this thing becomes uber-intelligent and then decides that we're dispensable and orchestrates our our disappearance, that probably isn't what will play out 
it could be far more insidious than that, in the sense that if you end up with a system that starts to change the fabric of society because it has inbuilt biases about how it makes the decisions that it makes, it will slowly change the way society works. The other thing that's got people concerned, particularly scientists, is that these systems have a tendency to hallucinate. That's what it's being called. Because if you ask them a question and they don't know the answer, then the programming means they tend to, uh, like a particularly imaginative 10-year-old, come up with a solution or an explanation for what you've asked them based on phony data. So people are concerned that if you have these sorts of systems working, one of the ways in which we know that data are real is that there's a lot of people saying the same thing a lot of the time. So it probably represents real thoughts and feelings and facts. If you've got something that can generate things at a ferocious rate and suddenly everyone's saying them, well, it kind of gives veracity and authenticity for something that just got made up. So there's a real danger that people could pollute the knowledge base with the hallucinations of these sorts of machines. And we will run into a situation where we can't tell fact from fiction. So at the moment, we just don't know where we stand on this. And that's why people are having the sorts of meetings that they did in places like Bletchley Park. Yes. And what's interesting, Dr. Chris, and I know you, as a journalist, I should be, but you know, I've never... I've never used chat GPT because I'm so scared and I feel, you know, I'm going out in the field, I'm reporting and then I have a few lines and then some, and someone is going to interpret. I almost feel like I'm cheating on my craft and cheating on, I, and I, I know like I'm sounding like Steve, like really paranoid, but I, I really feel like I'm cheating in terms of the work, but everyone else is doing it. I think it comes down to what sort of industry you're talking about. There are situations where this is a really useful adjunct and a really useful tool. For instance, if you're a delivery driver, back in the day, you would have made your rounds and you would have had to have had a map of where you were going in your head and hope that you were making the most sensible choices about which roads to take at what time of day. Well, now you have sitting there on your mobile phone even a device which is looking at all the real-time traffic information fed in by other road users. It's looking at where you've got to go and it's working out what the optimum way to go to all those different drop-offs is in the minimum time so you get home for your tea sooner. Now, that doesn't make you a less good driver. It doesn't make you a less efficient delivery driver. It makes you one who's better at using a new tool that you've been endowed with. On the other hand, if your intent by using this is to deceive people or to get ahead by doing things in a way that other people in that craft and profession would regard as underhand, then that's different. And so one has to weigh up, well, what, what's this doing? Is this making my job more effective? Is it making me a better journalist? Is the copy I produce more reliable? Am I getting more content on the page more quickly to help more people? Well, that's got to be a good thing. On the other hand, if you start generating stuff that's spurious, it's misleading, it makes mistakes half the time, the quality of your craft for you has gone down, but it's also misled a whole load of people and it's, it's also damaged the reputation of your particular profession. So one has to think of it in those terms. Is this actually translating into a good direction of travel or not mm, good good point dr smith um dr chris so we have a follow-up question from a listener ibrahim he's asking a follow-up to the ai question shouldn't we have a golden rule that ai should never be used in any military application and i guess this is your earlier point that there's those that will use it for good and others who won't follow the same rules. Yeah, quite. And in the same way that the internet has been an amazing revolution, never before has one person sitting in pretty much any part of, of the earth been able to access 
almost the sole endeavours of mankind are going back to the year dot and do it with a device that will slip into a pocket. And now you can. But at the same time, while you have all of this amazing knowledge at your fingertips, you have the convenience of being able to dial up a pizza with a couple of button pushes, you also see people losing the contents of their bank accounts and worse because of what this has brought in. So one one has to bear in mind that with all these things, there's good and there's bad, and there will always be evil actors and there will always be countries that don't sign up to these sorts of things and even if they do they they won't they won't follow that so once the genie is out of the bottle you're not going to get it back in absolutely dr chris so this is a question which i'm also interested in why are you called the naked scientist oh it was purely for shameless self-promotion and marketing um (laughs) back in the year 2001 which is when we started the naked scientist it was one of the first podcasts in the world And we were making radio programs, science radio programs on small scale commercial radio stations in the UK. And it was obvious we needed a way of scaling this up to get to more listeners and to do it beyond the constraints of just where the radio signals could go. So as the Internet had become sufficiently robust by the year 2000, 2001, that you could actually download more than about one nano bit in a century, it was possible to start putting fairly large audio files on the internet so i started putting radio programs that we'd made and recorded onto the internet and just giving them away for people to record uh, to take away and and use and consume and then i thought well, well why don't we give this a name that people will will laugh at but then it'll make them think and it also is about science. So let's try The Naked Scientist and see if that makes people chuckle. Uh, and and indeed it worked. And so it's been with us ever since. Fantastic. Love the explanation. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Now I know. Dr. Chris, so another question. Uh, why can we see sometimes see the moon during the day? That's from Keith. Hi, Keith. Well, the simple answer is that you can very often see the moon during the day. And this is because the Earth turns inside the orbit of the moon. So let's think about this. Imagine that the moon is your fist held out in front of you. Sorry, the earth is your fist held out in front of you. And the earth is turning. So you've got to imagine revolving your hand round on its own axis. Imagine you've got a robotic hand and you can just twist your hand round. So the earth is turning and that gives us day and night because you're illuminated on your bit of the earth's surface by light coming from the sun. And as the earth turns, it turns into the illumination and then the sun goes across the sky because the earth turns. The sun doesn't move, but the earth turns, so the sun appears to be going across the sky. It then gets dark because you've turned out of the bit that's being illuminated by the sun. But as the earth is turning, going around the earth on its own orbit is the moon, and the moon takes one month to complete one complete lap of the earth. So in the same way that it takes the earth a year to go around the sun, it takes the moon a month to go around the earth. That means that periodically, as the Earth is doing its twist day cycle, then parts of the Earth's surface are going to be illuminated and the Moon will be in a certain position in the sky at that time of the month. And they will therefore coincide certain days in the month when the Sun is illuminating the surface of the Earth and it's illuminating the surface of the Moon and therefore you see the Moon lit up during the day rather than lit up during the night. Mm, Thank you for that. Dr Chris, we've got a voice note. Question for Dr. Chris. Uh, What causes gout and is it really related to eating more meat? Does meat, eating meat cause gout? And then what can one do to prevent having gout? 
Kiki Kimsby. Ooh, I sense a, a man who has experienced the discomfort of gout. Gout is what we call a crystal arthropathy. It is where crystals, usually of a compound called urate, are deposited into the joints. And usually it's the joints on the ends of your toes that get affected, on your big toe. Also, fingers, hands. I've known a patient who had a gouty thumb. And the joint becomes red, hot, swollen, tender. And a person with gout will point to their sore toe and they won't let you touch it. And if it's gout, then they'll, they'll say, don't, whatever you do, touch that. It's absolute agony. And it swells up, very, very painful. And it's because the crystals of, of uric acid have, um, because of hyperuricemia, high levels of the substance in the bloodstream, have deposited themselves into the space in the joint and they cause inflammation. And it flares up, then you treat it with painkillers it goes away, but because the cause, hyperuricemia, high levels of uric acid in the bloodstream, remain, there is a high likelihood it will keep coming back until you treat the hyperuricemia. So what causes the hyperuricemia? The answer is lots of things can do that, but the question of KK refers to one of them. This is a rich diet. It's classically said that lots of red wine, red meat, port, and living a, a rich lifestyle. <laughs> Maybe that applies here, I don't know. But, but it can affect everybody, rich lifestyle or not. But that's one of the commonest causes, lifestyle factors. Also, because it's a metabolic thing, then you're going to get this in some people, unfortunately, because of a quirk of nature. And some diseases also lead to the breakdown of lots of the materials in cells. It's it's a derivative of the genetic, of genetic material that causes this to happen. Um, so what you do if you want to treat it is you get the levels of uric acid down. And the way you do that is there are various drugs, including one called allopurinol, which inhibits a particular enzyme which makes or breaks down the precursor to uric acid and that reduces your risk. So if you have uh, an, a, an episode of gout, you should go and get checked by the doctor, A, to make sure it is gout, B, to get some immediate relief, and C, to then get a blood test and some follow-up to find out why you've got the high levels if you have, and then get some treatment to make sure you minimise the chance of it happening again. Very insightful. My dad has gout, Dr. Chris, so I was taking the note, so I'll be chatting to him after the show. Another voice note? Hello, I would like to ask the naked scientist a question about clouds. On a very clear day when the sky is blue, 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 there always seems to be this wisp of a small little cloud, barely visible, but it's hanging there, tiny little thing. How is that possible and what is happening there? Uh, why is it only that small little wisp of white hanging in the air? And why does it not disappear or evaporate? Thanks, Ryan Brackenfell. Hi, Ryan. Well, what's a cloud? Clouds come in lots of different shapes and sizes, of course, and they also occur at different heights in the atmosphere, but they are water and ice crystals. So when water evaporates from the Earth's surface and the air is warm, it carries that warm, damp air aloft and it rises through the atmosphere with the gas around it expanding all the time because as you go up in the atmosphere, the pressure drops because there's less atmosphere above you. If the pressure drops, the gas expands. If it expands its temperature drops and effectively you get to a point where the temperature is low enough to turn the steam, the water vapour, back into the water droplets and ice crystals. 
Depending upon the ambient conditions, this happens at different heights above the Earth's surface. Storm clouds and thunder clouds quite close to the ground, very big water-laden clouds. Very high up in the atmosphere, you can get tiny tiny particles of ice that, that then, because of air currents, will rise very, very high, and they form those wispy trails, cirrus clouds. Cirrus is Latin for a a lock of hair, a wisp of hair, which is why we call it that, because it does look like strands of hair across the sky, doesn't it? And they are lots of little particles or aggregations of ice very high up. But why do they occur there at all? Because water, when you've got particles of water forming little crystals, they act as what are called nucleation sites or anidus because water molecules like to have other water molecules to latch onto in order to form bigger aggregations of water droplets and ice crystals. So once the process gets started in one place, it adds more water molecules to make more particles in that particular area and bigger particles. They'll stay there in that particular area until they get so big that gravity pulls them downwards and out of the clouds. So you tend to get this stratification of of the clouds based on the particle sizes as well. And I think that's accounting for why you're seeing what you're seeing. Question, I recently saw a news story of a Nigerian businesswoman who is recycling tyres and says the product is used in road construction. Is the safe orange rubber products flammable? Solly? Hello, Solly. Well, the answer is yes, it's it's absolutely what people are doing. And they're not just doing it with tyres, they're doing it with plastic bottles, uh, old CDs, and other things go into roads as well, like old telephone directories, not that we use those much anymore. But most people think that tyres are made of rubber. Excuse me. <clears throat> They're not. About 90% of a tyre is made from oil products that come from the crude oil industry. And that's not much different from the stuff that comes out the bottom of a fractional distillation column that we turn into bitumen on a road. So they're very chemically similar and therefore tyre material is quite a good additive to bulk up the stuff that you're putting into road surfaces. Are there any health disbenefits? Well there can be because tyre wear particles do get into the air when a car drives down the road and you can breathe that in and there are lots of things in there, heavy metals, other hydrocarbon components and so on but then that's true of the road surface anyway so most people are of the opinion that if we recycle tyres to turn them into road surface A, it's a quieter road surface and B, it's a good use of something that would otherwise be a terrible waste product. Tyres are one of the worst inventions in some respects for health and the reason for this is that often they get dumped, they last for tens to hundreds of years and whichever way you put an old tyre it always holds water and the worst most dangerous animal in the world is the mosquito because it spreads diseases and if you have little pools of water in old tyres the mosquitoes love it as a breeding ground so turning tyres into things that don't become mosquito breeding grounds is a really good way to save people from bad diseases so even if there is a small health risk from turning old tires into road surface it's well and truly negated by many of the health benefits of not having old tires stacking up and using other products to make roads anyway for your insight never enough time dr smith there's so many more questions unfortunately we can't get to them Uh, but it was an absolute pleasure to meet you dr chris smith via the air now i know what why you are called the Naked Scientist, and hopefully I get to speak to you soon again. I hope so. Thanks, Crystal, very much. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.